Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. You know, I'm always trying to think about marrying up Indian flavors with, like, how do people eat? You know, how can I get these flavors into formats that you will actually use? I look at sriracha on the shelf and I think, okay, everyone has it in their fridge. What if we harness some Indian flavors and put them into a bottle like that? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. The name Maya Kaimal may be familiar to many. After all, she runs an amazing packaged foods company that sells delicious pre-made South Asian sauces and dolls in more than 10,000 stores across the United States. Maya Kaimal is grocery store royalty. But we wanted to have Maya on the show to talk about her time working at Savor in the early 2000s and how she transitioned from that job to launching her eponymous food brand. We also talk about her excellent new cookbook, Indian Flavor Every Day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Mike Kaimal, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Such an honor to to meet you. I, I've I've seen your name on the on the Shoprite shelf, on the Whole Foods shelf, on you know online. You're you're always there, you know, waiting to offer an amazing sauce. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. We've uh, yeah, I've been at it a while. <laughs> yeah, and and we I, we will get into the CPG world. We'll get into uh, developing sauces back twenty years ago before. Indian sauces were were common in the grocery store. Mm. But first, I really wanted to talk to you about your time at Savour. Mm, yeah, that was a great phase of my career. It was kind of a dream job because yeah. I loved, I'd studied photography and I loved food. At that point, I'd written two cookbooks. So I was like deeply into food as well. And yeah, I got hired to be the photo editor. I'd been doing photo editing for other magazines. And it was at the time when the founding editors were still there. So Dorothy Kalins, Coleman Andrews, Christopher Hersheimer. And so working with them was really kind of an amazing experience because they were all super talented. Like they all wrote, they all edited, they all shared such a extreme passion and, you know, curiosity about the world and food. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty uh, formative for me because I I saw how they approached food in this idea that like really understanding kind of generational cooking like what had people been doing over and over and how do we capture that yeah. and memorialize it and how do we you know they were always about it has to the recipes we put in here have to be about something real something that exists we're not making things up we're not following trends we really yeah. are are it's, trying to find some kernel of like some soul to everything. And this is like early 2000s? Yeah, exactly. I worked there from 2000 to 2002. Yeah, so this is an era um when food media was much different and yes. I have to give it a lot of credit and what Dorothy and the team created. It's informed what we do at Taste. Like mm. Fully, fully informed, and it's informed the book work that many of us do here at Penguin Random House, and what the work you did, um, the way that you captured the world of food with documentary lens and, mm-hmm. and real was the word you said right away, and it has to be honored because that's like twenty plus years ago, and now it's almost like common to see like we're doing real spaces in real places, but man, right. food food media was studio driven. Yeah, yeah. At that point. Yep. I mean, it was it was an exciting time, I will say. And it really gave me uh, an orientation about like how to think about what I would go on to do, which is that, you know, every recipe needs to come from something real that I wasn't trying to create new things, but that everything had to start with a, a foundation that had 
been in the culture and, you know, kind of evolve it from there. But it, but it, it needed to be grounded in reality. Yeah, grounded in reality. And also just with photography shot in place, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. Just just capturing the entire flavor of the place, like all <laughs> the, you know, China, the chip China, the, yeah. you know, the beautiful hands that, mm-hmm. right. So to your point about studio photography, right, it was like we're going there yeah. and we're not styling it. We're not bringing dishes with us. We are just going to find what exists and we're going to capture that. It makes me so happy to hear that. Were there any memorable stories you worked on that were just really like difficult or memorable or just in general uh, life-changing that you worked on? Well, let's see. I did, I remember going to Mexico City to do a story and, you know, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a very photogenic home, you know, but it was a perfectly fine home. So, so, you know, this is where, you know, and and another one, I remember like, um, doing chicken pie in Vermont, like, Mm -hmm. you know, these just were very humble settings. And sometimes that can be really make good photographs. And sometimes it's hard, you know, you really have to, uh, kind of find this little corner with this interesting texture and you gotta, you know, it's, it, it's, forced me to be very creative on the fly. But Dorothy and team Coleman, they demanded, insisted, required that these real spaces be used for for just to go back to the mission of Savour. Yeah, it was it was, you know, experiencing was the tagline experiencing the world of authentic cuisine. So they wanted to go out and find it. And so they were they they fielded, you know, all kinds of great story ideas yeah. and vetted them and, you know, come up, came up with like the great perfect mix for the, each issue. And so, yeah, they, they, I mean, once occasionally we would take a recipe and we'd reshoot it in the studio, sure. you know, like the kitchen, the studio was yeah. a kitchen, literally like with the window. Were you at the space on 32nd street at that point? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. so that's when you were, so that space yeah. is legendary. Um, I was there, I was in the Soho space yeah. first and then the, yeah. And then, then the 32nd, 32nd Korea town. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Okay, so I want to now talk about your CPG business, consumer packaged goods, you know, what you're finding on the shelves at grocery stores. It's inspiring, as I said at the top, the idea that you're bringing flavors of India to the mainstream without compromise. Many have commented how how delicious the food is, but also how they feel like they're from a place from home. How did the idea come to you to to get uh, your recipes that you've been writing in your books 20 years ago onto the shelves. Yeah, well, it's an interesting journey because I never set out thinking I would ever do anything like this. But I met right after I got I got laid off from Savor, you know, mm-hmm. 9-11 and ad sales dropped and layoffs started. And so I was out of a job and I had just gotten married and... My husband had, I'd met a whole bunch of people who are very entrepreneurial through my husband. And one of them was the founder of Gourmet Garage. His name's Andy Ahrens. Oh, gosh. Really, what a name. Yeah, he... He's a legend. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, he, he really changed things for me because he could see that there wasn't anything interesting that he could put in his stores, right? He's like, there's this hole in the Indian set. And I had just been testing my second cookbook and having dinner parties, and he was part of that. And so he had tasted my food, and he said, you know, could you do something? Because then I would, like, I would put it in my store. So that really got the idea kind of going in my head, and my husband really encouraged me along those lines. And so I started to figure out how do you do this. I didn't want to do it. I didn't like how that part of the store looked. I didn't necessarily want to be ah. on the bottom shelf, all dusty and sad. So at the time, that part of the shelf, quote unquote, ethnic food aisle, which we've written about lo- a lot about that term, was like considered like Siberia, right? Kind of, yeah. Kind of a ghetto. Like, yeah. it, you know, pe- it wasn't the well-trafficked aisle that it is now. It was... um yeah. So, you know, the brands were there were there were few of them and they were all imports and it wasn't yeah. it wasn't exciting to Andy's point. So I I went to London. I decided I wanted to see what was going on there because I figured they, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I saw the best Indian food was being sold in the refrigerated set. And it was 
it tasted really good. So hmm. I came back and decided to launch a refrigerated line of sauces. You started with the refrigerated yes. section. Much different business than you have now. Much different. Okay. Yeah. But it was a way to break into a uh, – to this – it was a way to break into a new part of the store, right? I could be in the, yeah. in like, they're putting me in with sort of cheeses. And we were selling to specialty stores, right? I wasn't trying to go for, like, you know, stop and shop at that point. Yeah. I was I was going for the gourmet garages yeah. and the fairways. And, you know, those were, the, those were the perfect place to start because they were excited about the product and their con- their consumers were perfect you know their yeah. their their customers they know perfect. indian flavors they've been to Kalustians and been to exactly. like you know murray hill they've been maybe to queens yeah but then they want to make it at home but kind of don't understand how to make like a spice daba exactly yeah yep yeah. so it was you know and they were they were adventuresome they were up for it and they were you know everybody's shopping that section of the store so yeah. we really got in front of everybody everyone so i love it yeah so that's how we started the brand and um you know it was really good timing to i have to say i yeah. mean everything does go back to that for me is that this brand was able to grow because people's appetites for Indian food were beginning to grow. Yeah. You know, we were just right there at the perfect moment. Let me ask you, what were your first sauces when you're oh. a f- refrigerator section only brand? So um, coconut curry, vindaloo and tikka masala. Yeah. And I didn't want to do tikka masala. My husband and I had a big fight Interesting. About it. Why was, not? Oh, it's so obvious, I thought. <laughs> Everybody does that. <laughs> this is in 2003? 2003. <laughs> wow. Even then, it just felt like, ah. Uh, and, and, you know, my heritage is South Indian, and, yeah. and that's a North Indian. And my husband's like, are you out of your mind? Like, of course you're doing a tikka masala. It, it's, it's going to be the best seller. And yeah. Of course it is. He was great. And then Vindaloo is more of a southern dish. Yeah, like your, your sort family. of go in. Um, yep. But the coconut curry was truly uh, inspired by, like, my aunt's actual cooking. Like, yeah. her, she makes something called stew or ishtu. It's like a coconut milk with ginger, green chili, um, and it has potatoes in it. And it's it's just thick and luscious and tropical. It has curry leaves in it. So it's kind of got this, like, bright mm-hmm. citrus note. It's, it's really lovely. And so... I was able to to do that one as well, and that was our second bestseller. So interesting. Now, let me ask you: back then, two thousand three, pre-internet, basically. I <laughs> yeah. mean, we're talking about definitely no smartphones. We had internet, but it was different, and we certainly weren't marketing food on the internet. Mm-hmm. So, how do you grow your brand and get word of mouth buzzing in, or word of mouth transferring to more and more people? How do you do that? Yeah. Well, so we were. You know, making our sales like literally door to door through New York City. We lived in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and we were getting in to the the right kinds of stores. And then we got so that we got the attention of a distributor mm-hmm. who was able to get us into Whole Foods. And then that got us some national presence. And then, um, you know, I'd worked in the magazine industry for 15 years prior to doing this. So you had friends. I did you know had a some few contacts. people and they were like, what are you doing? Let's, <laughs> let's, let's get some of that. And yeah. then they, you know, nicely wrote about it in magazines. So yeah. And back then, we're talking like early 2000s, the magazines was like internet on, on crazy steroids. Yeah, exactly. And like that's how you, that's why the magazine industry was so popular and, and thrived then, right? Yeah, you got all your good tips and information there. Yeah, and so your name and your brand got into like places like probably Vogue and like cool places that like, you know, spread the word. Whole Foods finds you. How do you then fill those orders for Whole Foods? How do you scale up your business? Mm. Well, so one of my very key decisions at the beginning was not to make it myself. And the fact that it was refrigerated, it just precluded ever making, like it couldn't, you know, it's not like making brownies in your oven. Like you, it was never going to happen in my kitchen. So because of the pH and the filling, you know, hot fill, it's like a certain, in order to keep the microbial growth down, you have to be in a particular, you know, environment for that and have the right equipment. So we had a uh, co-packer, contract manufacturer up in uh, Saugerties, New York. Mm. And so that we ended up moving up near the co-packer wow. actually right after we launched the business i was pregnant with twins and wow. <laughs> just started a business living up in Saugerties, uh, <laughs> out in the woods back then before the hudson valley and catskills yeah. were kind of the cool place to go yeah we <laughs> moved to woodstock actually but yeah it was yeah. uh yeah, it's exactly not not as cool then but it was you know it still had its it still had oh, its sure. great stuff Love going it. on and so we used uh he was uh making pasta sauces fresh for 
fairway mm-hmm. and Balducci's and Gourmet Garage. So he was already like driving his trucks down yeah. to the city. So that helped. So he was able to scale. You know, he he bought another kettle and he, you know, he hired another person and and he was up for the growth of the business. He was this Austrian guy. He's an interesting character. Uh, Wolfgang was his name. And yeah, yeah, he was just really excited by the project. So we were lucky that way. And so uh, the flavors were feeling you were you were testing. You were doing QC at that point, like a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, I'd go there all the time and, you know, just taste spoonful after spoonful after spoonful of coconut curry at seven in the morning. Oh my gosh. So I want to, I want to fast forward and cause I want to get to your book as well, but you're now currently 20 years later, you're in over 10,000 stores. Mm-hmm. You're in basically every store. And if you go to the ethnic food aisle, quote unquote, you will find a line of products, many SKUs with your name on it. And you've been there. You've been part of this for a decade. How do you go? How do you get there? First question. And second, how do you maintain the spirit of and the flavor of, of what you were doing up there in, in Socrates mm. back in 2003 with Wolfgang making every batch? Yeah. Well, uh, it's we are really rigorous and tireless and annoying, I think, to all of our manufacturers about yeah. how we want things to taste. And it starts with the ingredients. Like we taste all the coconut milk options before we choose one. Uh, and then we have to have a secondary supplier lined up as a backup. And then we taste all the tomato pastes available. You know, like yeah. these things are the foundations of of the flavor. And if they aren't right, if they're, if we're just going for the low cost option, it's going to affect everything. So the spices, you know, the curry leaves, like all of it, we, we really, we dig in hard to the sourcing and make sure that, that, we everything passes mm-hmm. muster, and then the then we train our manufacturers how to make it because a lot of these things require steps that they aren't familiar with, haven't done before, and you know the popping mustard seeds in hot oil. Mm-hmm. Like I guarantee you, most manufacturers never yeah. did that, especially no. at scale. At scale, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that's a sound. I'm sure. Oh yeah, any large. Um, whatever the, the equipment's called. Yeah, well, they would they, they, it ends up happening in a stock pot. Yeah. But yes, it's uh it's 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 exciting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, um and caramelizing the onions it yeah. takes 45 minutes. I mean, that's a long time in manufacturing, you know, systems. It's like that that's that slows everything down if you have to do spend 45 minutes on one step. So, you know, and then and then the blooming of the spices mm-hmm. in in those onions, like really sauteing those for five minutes. Like, you know, you can't rush this. You can't add the liquid too soon. You're not going to develop the flavors of those spices. So so really making sure everybody understands like exactly how to make everything and then, you know, our testing of what's being done. So we can't be there for every run. It, no. It's not practical, but we have we have them ship us like beginning, middle, and end mm-hmm. of a day's run, and we you know have all the jars lined up on the counter, and we Amazing. just stick our spoon in. So and many start questions. Tasting. <laughs> I got so many follow up questions. So I mean, where are you making this stuff? Is it like in multiple places around the country? Mm-hmm. Like, again, ten thousand stores. Mm. That is scale at its highest for CPG. <laughs> it's truckloads. You yeah. know, it's it's kind of uh, yeah, yeah mind boggling. Um, we make a um, we we have a lot of a few different facilities, but for the if you're talking about the simmer sauces, which yeah. have the widest distribution. Those are uh, mostly made in Pennsylvania okay. and some are made in Texas too. Okay. So you so have two have plants. Two. Mm-hmm. My goodness. Um, was there a moment when you went went Hollywood, you went super big that it felt like you were taking that next leap? I'm sure there's been many uh, benchmarks or uh, along the timeline, but I feel like there's probably a moment when you felt like, wow, we're, we're actually in like thousands of stores. Oh, it happens so gradually. You know, it's just, it's like a, it's, I mean, I think it, when when we did get into Costco, that felt pretty Costco. big. Yeah, I've heard that from other founders. That is a huge moment, but the Costco it, moment. It is a big moment, and it comes with a lot of responsibility, yeah. right? You have to play that game correctly. You have yeah. to you have to have all your ducks in a row. You've got to know what they like, what they don't like. You can't be late with the shipment. You you know, th- there's just 
So it helps to have like a, a broker or a, mm-hmm. a rep or somebody like really guide that process. Doing it on your own can be can be fraught. So, um, but it's also awesome volume. Obviously, highly unpredictable. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you get what an, do you mean? I mean, unless you're an everyday item, like say your Tabasco sauce, right? It's in every building all over the country. Yeah. Then you're going in and out on rotations. So, and you're in and out, you have to sell into every region separately. Yeah. So that's how Costco works. They have regional oh, yeah. sales. So you have to do meetings with like all the regionals. All the regions. Yeah. Mm. I've heard Walmart's different. Mm. Yeah. There's more centralized. Centralized. Buying there, but no, it's very decentralized at yeah. Costco. And um, so you might be in with one product in one region and another product in another region. And, you know, and they're doing 12-week rotations, and then they stop, and then they maybe they pick it up again, maybe another region picks it up, maybe all the regions pick it up, and you get to do a big national promotion. But uh, so it can go from like, you can go from high volume down to low volume, like within a year. I mean, so it's very hard to do your planning. I mean, you have cash to... flow has got to be difficult when you're getting <laughs> yeah. or- these crazy orders and then it just stops. Yeah. They pay quickly though. So that they okay. pay up, they pay before you have to pay your suppliers. So that's the beautiful thing about Costco. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's the reason why they're so successful. Yeah. It goes, it starts from there. Okay. Let me just take, like, let's find out what's your day like now. I mean, we're talking about regional sales for just one channel. You've got like many channels. Are you like in meetings? I mean, how day to day are you right now with the brand? Yeah, I'm day to day. I'm. <laughs> I mean, we're we're in person in our office up near Rhinebeck, New York, mm-hmm. and um, some of the team is remote because they always were. They're all around the country. Yeah. So you know, Zoom calls are still absolutely a thing. But um, so lots of yep, lots of Zoom meetings, planning innovation. Um, you know, I go go on some sales calls. I will, um, you know, we do some videos, we do some photo shoots in Kingston. We, Mm -hmm. um, so, but my, when I'm in the office, we're tasting, we may be working on benchtop versions of something new, or we may be trying to, you know, figure out how to, you know, work the like with our manufacturing process maybe there's like a more efficient way for the manufacturers so we have to retest doing it that way in our in our offices so we're just we're constantly sort of you know churning things out of our kitchen yes you you have a big culinary studio and and kitchen well it's like a yeah we have our office is a house so it's kind of set up like there's a nice big kitchen there and it it, it's a good kind of open plan it's just yeah i mean you know studio sounds so yeah yeah, you're being real it's 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 like uh kingston life it's not like you're in fancy like Tribeca studio. <laughs> no, you're God, actually, no. I yeah. love it. No, it's the spirit of your brand. It's cool. Um, let's talk about in this final question about the, your products. What are some of the new products that you're making? What, what are we haven't really talked about what you're what you sell now? I mean, you have the Simmer sauces, which is so well known, but there's probably other brands. Yeah. I mean, it seems like every other day there's a pouch of chick of chick chickpeas arriving <laughs> in my in my world. Really? Um, I love Hungry Root. I, I I'm a subscriber. Um, and a fan, and they always are sending, like, cool chickpeas. Your products mm-hmm. are ending up in there sometimes, so. Great. Yeah. Yeah, well, so the pouch, yeah, we do a lot of things in pouches because it's a great way, a mm-hmm. format for doing the bean dishes yep. that are really a big part of Indian cuisine. Then, um, you know, I'm always trying to think about where marrying up, like, Indian flavors with, like, how do people eat? You know, how can I get these flavors into formats that you will actually use? You know, so, like, I look at sriracha on the shelf and I think, okay, everybody's so comfortable. Everyone has it in their fridge. What if we harness some Indian flavors and put them into a bottle like that? And so we created a line of chili sauces, red and green chili sauces, to give people, like, an Indian condiment that had that nice, like, Indian twist to it. Mm Mm-hmm. What is the twist then? Is it is it um, cardamom? Is it heat? Is it, what is well, it? Well, so heat is heat is part of both. So with the the red chili, we used Kashmiri red chili, yeah. and we also used uh, tamarind. So the tang isn't coming from like a vinegar; it's coming from a fruit. You know, it's coming from a nice nice um, hit of tamarind. So beautiful, beautiful ingredient, tamarind. Yeah, and on many cultures too. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's great. great. It's wonderful. So great with seafood. Yep. And then the green chili sauce has fresh serranos in it, but then it also has coconut milk and curry leaves. So it yeah. has that South Indian profile. So there's really nothing like that one in the market. I love that one so much. Yeah. Super good. Like 
Mike Mall. Go go buy go buy these products. Like I'm, I'm just like saying, it's if you haven't heard of this brand, like check it out. Just go to your store. Okay, new section. I want to talk about your your journalism and your in your your work, your your cookbooks. Mm. But first, like holistically, what do you say to folks who say Indian food is intimidating? I I hear you. <laughs> sure. I hear you. I get it. I the. The reason I do the things I do is because I'm trying to make it that much easier for everybody to get some Indian flavors in their lives, right? I just, I'm trying to nudge Indian food into your world. In I want to, I want you to be able to go through the easy door to get there. So, because I know, I get it. I get it. It's why I made the sauces because yeah. it's too many steps. It's, I got to have too many things in my cupboard mm-hmm. and, you know, and, you know, Forget like the fresh serranos and the fresh curry leaves and the fresh ginger that, you know, probably that aren't probably in most cupboards, maybe. But, um, yeah, it's it's a lot of time and effort to make Indian food from scratch. Mm. And the thing is, you know, if you're having an Indian meal, you know, in India, many people made that meal. Mm-hmm. Many hands were involved. It's not good point. one person really doing it point. all. So it's not realistic to think that, you know, people are going to be whipping up Indian dinners uh, as a regular thing. So, yeah, it's maybe a special dinner party. You you know, you you spend all day doing it. So um, so I I think that you have to set your expectations to at a reasonable place Mm -hmm. with Indian food. So, you know, maybe you make one thing that's Indian, you know, or maybe you make you you make a nice rice dish and then you use my sauce yeah. for the chicken. And, you know, so so I I I want people to feel like they don't have to have an Indian meal just to mm-hmm. enjoy Indian flavors. Yeah, you articulate this well in Indian flavor every day in your new book. I feel like that's a really good point that it doesn't have to always be every scratch, like quote unquote scratch made. There's definitely reasons to use sauces or use you know, those things you buy at Clustians or, or wherever you may shop. Right. Um, let's talk about 20 years ago. You're writing books about Indian food. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like back then it was a little different. It was a harder sell to publishers. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the evolution of the way Indian food is perceived in cookbooks. I feel like you were early, very early to write about Indian food. Mm, yes. It was a time when Mother Joffrey and Julie Sani were yep. the reigning queens and that, you know, the publishers were resistant to my book. They're like, well, we already have an author or we yeah. already have, a, we did a book last year or, you know, it was. Or five years ago. Or five, years. Like five years ago we did a book and we're, we're cool with like yeah, India. Yeah, we're all set. <laughs> Funny how that works. I know. So, you know, mine had a South Indian angle to mm-hmm. it and that helped differentiate it from mm-hmm. what was in the market. And I went with a publisher that gave me the lower advance because they were Abbeville Press, yeah, and they because they were going to put photos in it, and I the other publisher wanted me to add another hundred recipes and no pictures, and I'm like, why would I do that book? (laughs) (laughs) But they were offering twice as much. But you know, I took an eleven thousand dollar advance for my first book. (laughs) Wow. Well, they say the the lower the advance, the quicker you earn it back. Yeah, I earned it out. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, that that was um, (laughs) yeah that it. but it, they did a beautiful job with it. I'd love to hear that. So I got to use a photographer that I'd been using in my magazine life. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and yeah, it was, it, it came out, it came out nicely and it was doable and the recipes worked, you know, those, that was taking my dad's recipes that he'd been honing for years. Right. Yeah. And so they were incredibly well tested and, but still they were you know, an ask of the cook. Yeah. And how did you negotiate that back 20 years ago when you're asking um, without really the food internet and, and really easy ways to get spices? Well, you know, people mail ordered back then. So you had to have a section in the back of the book for mail ordering your spices. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Patel Brothers Kalustians was in there, yeah. you know, the usual suspects would mail them out. But yeah, I mean, but we, but so you have to understand too, when I was growing up, my father was making Indian food in Boston. We, there was, 
the, there were no curry leaves, right? He was using bay leaves. Mm, and Really? Wow. Yeah. Different, different product. Yeah, definitely a different product. And it was really hard to get um, dried red chilies. It was really hard to get fresh green chilies when you had to go to Chinatown. And you, so sometimes there weren't fresh green chilies in the food. Sometimes... You know, he had to, he, he couldn't get tamarind, so he would use lemon juice. And so he had made every adaptation that, you know, imaginable to make delicious food that tasted as as true as he could make it mm-hmm. based on a really limited set of ingredients. So the recipes in the first book, they still worked. They didn't, you know, if you didn't have fresh curry leaves, it was okay. You know, everything still had a full flavor to it. The book has a really strong point of view, and it, and it makes a statement that Indian food can be made multiple times a week for all backgrounds. Like for for like someone like me, I could definitely be making three or four times a week if I was deciding to cook these flavors. Now, I think many of our listeners love Indian food in the restaurant yeah. format, but make an argument for this the sake of this this conversation that you can actually make Indian food multiple times a week. You need to reimagine what Indian food can be, because Oh yes, I gotta get the onions and I gotta do the garlic and the ginger. Da, 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 da. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this this long process. But a lot of Indian food is not like that. And if you grasp a couple of the seasoning techniques, you like the tarka, right? So the popping mustard seeds, cumin seeds. Maybe you throw in a little onion. You throw in a little uh, chili flake. That's what you can saute your green beans in or your peas in or your, you know, what sauteing vegetables is, is, you know, I think we're all so comfortable with the Italian garlic red mm-hmm. chili flake. Well, that's like a tarka, right? So why not add a few ingre- like Indian a ingredients? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's just like you're flavoring that oil, yep. right? You're getting that oil really nice and and interesting. And so then that's the base for something as simple as a stir fry. So that's all I'm suggesting is that that do this little twist for something that you're already going to eat. I'm mm-hmm. not asking you to make something that, you know, is completely different necessarily, you know, or, or say you're an example in the book is like the butternut squash soup, right? So there you're doing a tarka at the very end of the soup oh, as cool. like a garnish kind of thing. So there's this two uses for a tarka. So tempered be, oil at the very end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's another great way to use a tarka. It's like you can, you know, do that over anything like mashed potatoes or risotto or, you know, it's a great technique that can be this this like supercharged garnish. I love that. And you, you make this really cool point. And I've never read this before. I feel like I've been blessed with great conversations with Indian chefs and Indian cookbook authors, but I've never heard this. You say that soups are the best place to express Indian spices. And I never really made that connection, but you think about it and you're like, wow, yes, that is exactly when, you know, Indian spice spice blends are being expressed in cooking. Yeah, it, it's it's true. And the thing is, you know, in in making that, like you're you're doing your onions, right? And then and then you want to make sure you're adding your spices to those onions and really blooming them, right? I mean, some soup recipes sort of have you pop the spices in with the water and the tomato and everything. And that, I just would never do that that way. You just, if you just take the Indian approach, mm-hmm. you put them in, you get this great flavor base by by sauteing your spices in with, with your onions. And then you're building your soup with whatever else you're going to put in it. But having, and, and I like to put dal in my soup because it yeah. breaks down and just, Velvety. Gives you, yeah, it yeah. gives that nice mouthfeel. So it's not just sort of brothy. It's actually nice and thick. And maybe you're putting coconut milk in there too to thicken mm-hmm. it. And then maybe you're finishing it with, with that tarka. So, yeah. For many, the mulgatani soup is like one of the uh, the soups that we know. I mean, yeah. like, as, and you know, there's many, many, many other ways to express soup, but it's all about that mouthfeel, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and it's yeah. lentils or, I mean, dog. Yeah. yeah, you know, some people think of dal as a soup or a stew. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a cousin, right? Yeah. So just it's not a big leap to take that and make that into a soup. Okay, Maya, I want to know about in the book, is there a recipe that you feel is like your breakout? Is this the recipe that you think will hit on the internet or that everyone should be maybe going to first? Well, I know I talked about this before, but if we're talking about something that's really doable, really delicious. I would point people to this 
delicious butternut squash soup. Like it's simple, but the flavors of the cumin and the mustard seeds just come through so fully. So it doesn't sound, it's not maybe the most thrilling of options, but I, I just think that is a winner. I also really love what I've discovered is a great combination, which is roasted vegetables with tamarind. Interesting. Like tamarind, tamarind syrup? Tamarind ch- chutney. Yeah. Like, yeah. So there's a recipe for tamarind chutney in nice. the book. It's great. It's not hard to make. It keeps in your refrigerator for six months. Like you can just make it and have it. And then as you're roasting, after you roast your vegetables, you drizzle with tamarind chutney and then uh, top it with some fried shallots. Oh my God. It's just like sweet caramelly notes and the tangy tamarind and this oh. it's amazing. Do you buy those fried shallots at like the Asian grocery store? I make my own but yeah. they're you know those are great too. Oh my gosh. Time, I love those so much but yeah, fried the, shallots put it on soups. Oh my god so amazing. So yes. good. You've lived in the Hudson Valley for a while now like myself. What's it like living up there now? Really pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it is calm, right? I yeah. I think I we just got to a, a place where we had, you know, just had these babies, twin girls and the city just it was it was feeling like a lot. Yeah, definitely. And my husband's a writer, so he could write anywhere and we had this manufacturer upstate and so we just we just started looking for a place where we could like have our careers yeah. and not be surrounded by, you know, all the noise and the and the lovely, wonderful things that the city has, but that we wouldn't even be able to take advantage yeah, of yeah. because we were so busy. So, um, so it just, it's the, the Hudson Valley called. We went to Woodstock first, then we ended up crossing the river and going, living in Rhinebeck. And we've been there for, yeah, long 12, 12 years. years. Wow. God, yeah. I mean, let's, let's talk about restaurants up there just like briefly. Mm. Do you have, do you have some favorite spots you want to call it? I'm just like tapping you for information at this point. Oh, well, you know, it's so funny. The Indian restaurant in Rhinebeck is amazing. Holy moly. (laughs) You're blowing my mind. I know. It's, I love it. I, it's called Cinnamon and it's this really great couple. They're actually Sri Lankan, but they, they have a beautiful, classy restaurant there. The food is consistent and excellent and they really care about what they're doing and they're actually expanding and and opening a second restaurant in Woodstock shortly but yeah so that's one of my favorite places to eat I mean I love Abba's falafel there's an oh I know Abba's falafel falafel totally know Abba's been there many times they are they are great they they make great falafel um yeah I mean it's there are so many good chefs in the area. I hate to like single any out, but they, Definitely. you know, we, we eat well in Rhinebeck. I know. Like, my wife's always on the Paul Rudd hunt, by the way, when we go to oh. Rhinebeck, do, 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 do you ever see Paul? You guys, you guys tight? Um, he's a friend of a friend of ours, actually. So <laughs> I happen to have met him, but yeah. he doesn't, you know, wander around the streets of Rhinebeck much. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Tomorrow, I guess that's, that's going to crush your dreams right there. Okay. Uh. Okay, so I have to know New York City Indian restaurants. You, you've worked in food editorial. You're always in the city. Do you have a couple go-to Indian restaurants that we should be hitting up in New York? I have to admit I am a little out of touch with what's happened since, you know, since fair COVID times. Fair, fair. And there are a lot of new exciting places on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. Um, I did get to try Sema, which oh, yeah. was a really... Um, fun experience because it's South Indian. So, of course, it's got some of my favorite flavors uh, in the world on there. Um, yeah, I liked it. I liked I like that they're just not pulling any punches, you know, that, that this is where I think Indian food, this is how Indian food can be exciting to people, right? As yep. opposed to something they think they know. Like, I like how... Delicious that food there. They're is, called unapologi- yeah, unapologetic, which is fun. I mean, can you imagine a place when you were writing 20 years ago calling themselves unapologetic and, and no, putting never. Kashmir chilies all we over had, the menu? It took us a while to get to this place, but I love that we're here and that they're, you know, that they're just breaking down stereotypes. I love it. I, it's an exciting time for South Asian food in, in New York City mm. and, and the country. I mean, you're, you're leading the way, too, by getting more uh, of our listeners and, and folks to cook with flavors of India. Yeah, I think that 
there's so many facets to the cuisine. And for so long, the restaurants really focused on North Indian and just such a standard playbook. And it was as if there was nothing else, that, yeah. you know, to learn. Like, you just need to know chicken tikka masala yeah. and naan and tandoori chicken. And I was shocked when I came to New York and, and, and heard that there was it's Sixth Street was filled with all these great Indian restaurants mm. and they were all serving the same thing and it was, you know, you could tell the ingredients weren't great and they were competing for the lowest price. And so I, I just felt like food, Indian food for a long time was really more of a business proposition, not like a culinary experience. Mm. You know, they were just sort of, they'd created, they'd found the formula that worked. And so yeah. they just turned out the, that, that mm-hmm. version. And so we're fortunately getting chefs that are coming in really cooking from the heart and from their, you know, mother's recipes yeah. and from their region. And that is like, oh my God, we are all so ready for that. Absolutely. You have to shout out Asha Gomez in, in Atlanta oh, and Nirwana awesome. Rani as well. Oh yeah. All, yeah. Just amazing chefs uh, for the past half decade have been, decade even, have been pushing boundaries. And now in, in New York with Sema, Damaka and and all the unapologetic restaurants. It's so exciting. Yes, it is an exciting time for Indian food. We asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to write this book, Maya, what book would that be? Mm, yeah, well, I have to say I'm really very intrigued by Indian Chinese cooking. It's a whole sub cuisine, and it's it's really uh, very popular all over India. But it kind of started in Eastern India, Cal- Calcutta, um, and it's it's like Chinese food in the hands of Indians. So they're putting a lot of their own flavors in there, like yeah. coriander. What's a dish? So well, there's you know. Uh, there's Gobi Manchurian, mm-hmm. right? Everybody knows this sort of like it's almost like a cauliflower pakora kind of thing, but with the nice sort of uh, soy, tangy soy yep. sauce on it. So, um, and then lots of noodles, noodle dishes too. There's, um, it's just a, it's like spicier than Chinese food. And it's got some of the, you know, it's got more chili, it's got mm-hmm. more cumin it's got more yeah. coriander and so indians when they go to china are kind of surprised yeah you know it's like oh wait this is this chinese is not food. what i was promised <laughs> so you're gonna write a book about this i mean i'm thinking about it i'm 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 definitely exploring recipes interesting yeah are you gonna get back up on the horse and, and write another book soon well hopefully before 20 years passes yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i hope so and i hope that you'll come back and talk more about your business and Indian food. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Maya Kamal, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's great to see you. What's up? Not much. I just, I want to talk to you about three things. Yeah. Let's go. Tell me a thing. Let's go. All right. I finally made it to Raza in Jersey City. Okay. No, Raza, like the best pizza in New York. That's not in New York. I thought that was a, a different place, actually. But tell me about Raza. Oh, is there a different place? I, I just know Raza has gotten great reviews. Yeah. And um, Dan Richards, the chef there, he has a great book out. And I went for dinner celebrating um, Katie Parler's new book. Uh, and I got to try the pizza. And I have a lot of thoughts. I like most of it. I like most of it. What's the, Tell me about the style. Tell me about your favorite one. Well, it's Neo. It's Neapolitan. So it's it's definitely, like, really fast. Um it's like thinner than I thought. And I, that was the one thing that maybe surprised me. I like it in, in reflection because I like usually an elastic crust for any Neapolitan style pie is what I what I go for. But this one was like a little thinner and pounded out and it felt like it was almost like cracker like, but still very dry. It wasn't like Roman style. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is my interpretation. I don't know what Dan will. I don't know how Dan articulates his, his style and we'll have him on the show to talk about it. But um, I loved it. And like the toppings were pretty classic. Like, you know, uh, Margarita was probably my favorite. And and he did one with sausage and and like sage or some kind of herbs. And I, I just think it's one of those places I've always wanted to go to. And I finally made it there. That sounds great. I'll have to make a trip to Jersey. Jersey City, baby. It's 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 really um, not that far from New York. Yeah. Get on the path train. Get on the path. 
What's your first one? My first thing is that I had a smoothie recently that had Earl Grey tea in the smoothie. Like they brewed the tea and then that was the liquid. It was a blueberry smoothie. Wow. It was super good and it made me think about how, you know, I'm always that person that has all of the different beverages around me and that I could just be combining my caffeine and my smoothie instead of having all of the cups. Because I've had, you know, like a cold brew banana smoothie. That's a thing. Matcha, I think, in a green smoothie, also kind of a thing. But the brewed Earl Grey tea in something I thought was really cool, and I loved it. Cooking with tea is interesting. I think that it's it's kind of intimidating for some people, right, to, like, brew and then add it to either a pastry or a smoothie. But when it hits, it's great. Yeah, you know, I have the chai masala that Diaspora yeah. does that is all this really fine powder that yeah. I've been mixing into oatmeal and things like that. So I think that that is one version. I think brewing the tea and then adding it to something else feels a little bit less clear to me just because you don't want it to overpower. You also, like, don't want it to not be present at all. No. Um, but now I'm thinking about, you know, I really love oolong tea and it's kind of yeah. naturally peachy. Maybe I'd want to do, like, a, a peach smoothie with oolong in the summer. I love that. Wait, did, did you make this or did you buy this at a place? No, I was um, I was at a smoothie chain in Miami called Pura Vida and oh. they had it. It was called Purple Rain and it had the Purple Earl Grey Rain. tea in it. Love that. It's Jordan Michaelman's working on a tea story um, to end all tea stories. Just going to say that. The it's, last tea story that's ever going to The be. last tea story for the internet has been conceived, has not been written, waiting on the copy. We'll see how we, we, we see, see where we get. Sorry, tea writers. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> no shade to tea writers uh, at all. I love tea writers. No, I'll keep reading the tea stories until the end of time. I find it very <laughs> interesting. I thought you were going to say reading the tea leaves and make a... Oh, uh, no, you could do that one. <laughs> I kind of just backed into that one. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Okay. <laughs> What's your second thing? You know, my next thing is uh, it's Nunchi. Mm-hmm. It's Lexi Park. To summarize, she does these incredible jelly cakes um, that she sells in Los Angeles and has done pop-ups all over the, the world. And I've written about her and, and spent some time with her in Los Angeles and Seoul while working on Korea World. And I just haven't mentioned or written about her um, operation on taste and I wanted to shut it out for my three things because I I saw that she was doing a pop-up in Portland that looked really cool or doing some travel in Portland and I'm like I want her to come to New York and do a pop-up yeah her cakes are stunningly beautiful they're she's someone I follow on Instagram and I always love seeing them and I'm really curious about the flavor does she do specific flavors she does many flavors and many styles she made a cake for our book and we did a photo shoot there this past winter um and I have to say the way that the 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 light cream and the gelatin gelée kind of marry I was I did not know if it would taste good. I just knew it was very cool looking before knowing Lexi and and she's so generous and and just a fun hang her and Willie. But um delicious. It's really light. It's much lighter than you would imagine. It's not like a dense cheesecake. And um, I'm going to link to in the show notes. You should. She's definitely a follow on Instagram. And if you're in LA, like you know, buy a cake. They're like amazing. She does custom lettering, or she does. She has a couple stock ones. She does like this crazy one with a like a baby or like a fetus or something. Yeah. In, in that realm, it's quite cool. Yeah. Did you give it a little jiggle before you ate it? I honestly had half of one in my hotel room. Just like long story short, we did the shoot and then everyone had to leave and I was left with the cake. Not a bad situation. Great situation. I mean, I'm like sitting with this like incredible cake in my hotel room and I'm like, do I just do the whole cake? That's but that's like crazy to eat a whole cake. That's like it's a commitment for sure. It's commitment. I mean, I, I've done it before in the past. I think when I was young, um, no longer a young man who can eat whole cakes in a whole sitting. So I think. I left a few slices for the for the hotel. Nice, uh, but I, but that's a you know digression. I think Lexi Park is somebody to follow, and I love it. And I can't wait to share her story in uh, in the book. Mm-hmm. What's your next thing? My next thing is this soft serve that I had at Leo here in Brooklyn recently. If you've never been to Leo, they yeah. always are changing out their soft serve flavors. My favorite one probably is the Concord Grape, which is only available in the fall. And I really spent the whole year thinking about it. But I, they right now have a swirl that's the salted caramel, which is always one of the flavors. Yeah. And the extra one is um, coconut. And then it's served with a lot of uh, sesame seeds on top. And it just is so satisfying and delicious. Wow. Soft serve can be so good. So good. I, I think I prefer soft serve yeah. to hard serve. I don't know. Hard pack or or whatever. Other old, ice old cream. Old-fashioned ice cream. Yes. 
Um, I agree. I, I, I'm going to, maybe it's the summer of soft serve for me because I went to our, they just opened the ice cream shop near our house and it, it just was a little disappointing. Mm. But I went with the hard pack and it was like a lower quality hard pack, but I think they might be known for their soft serve and they do like a banana soft serve. Yeah. Banana soft serve sounds good. I mean, I'm a Mr. Softy girl in the summer. I will flag yeah. down every truck I see. Yeah. If I'm walking to dinner, I'll still get it because I feel like I have a scarcity mentality <laughs> that it's going to be gone and One I'm going to look back on it and have missed my opportunity. <laughs> so I really, I'm always carrying dollar bills around with me in the summer to get ice cream. Did you read that story about the 99 cent slice like going away in New York? Mm, I feel like every couple of years there's a story yeah, write that. about inflation. But I think there's a dollar slice placed by our office that I think is still one dollar. Even though they said the last one was served at Two Brothers. We should go check after this. I think it reminds me. I'm, we're going to do, go do that. It reminds me of like this idea of of old New York and how one day everything will probably be, be old New York. One day they'll be like, remember Sweet Green? <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say Sweet Green. Ah. <laughs> I just think like as you age out of New York or you move and you're like, oh, remember old New York? And it's like Mr. So- Mr. Softy might not be there. Oh, don't even say that. Mr. Softy's going to make it through. There's The apocalypse is going to happen and you're going to be like walking through the bombed out world and you're going to hear you're, that jingle. Yeah. You've been watching a lot of HBO. Yeah. The Last of Us is in my head. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I have okay. What, what's your third thing, Matt? I got to see Adina Sussman's book, Shabbat. I got a PDF of it. I want to, I just like, it's, it's coming out in September. So I got an early look at it, but I really enjoy Adina's writing and, uh, you know, Sababa, her first book uh, that she wrote on her own is, is one of my faves. And I just think doing a book about Shabbat is really cool. Yeah. One of my favorite recipes in Sababa is a Shabbat recipe actually. So I think it'll be really cool to see. There's so much, um, you know, the way that people have modified cooking so that you can be not cooking on Shabbat, but having fresh food to eat, I think is really interesting. I agree. And I think the way she shot this one is a little different too. And I think it's going to open up the way, um, she talks about food, just the way it's been photographed and designed. It's a beautiful book out in September, pre-order it. What's your final thing? My final thing is a non-alcoholic beverage that I had at an Oscars viewing party recently mm. that I loved, which is hop tea. Have you had this before? Hop tea? No, I haven't. It is um, sparkling tea or even just seltzer that has hop flavoring in it, um, but it's not alcoholic. And it's just like botanical and refreshing and not too sweet. And I, I drank like three cans of it probably. I've had hop seltzer. yeah. Which I think one of the craft brewing, I'm going to say one of the Michigan brewers did it and it was really nice. So it might be similar to that. Yeah, I think it is similar to that. Yeah. I think it's a, a kind of a growing genre of beverage. And, I, you know, I, when I say hop tea, I think maybe you would think that it drinks like a beer, but it doesn't no. even really taste like beer. And it doesn't even taste like cannabis, which is also, you know, related to the hops plant. Yeah. But it does have this kind of vague feeling of... Um, not intoxication, but just like, you know, getting a little boost or a little um, oh, kind of feeling. You're feeling way. a little bit of the adaptogen, blah, blah, blah. Maybe. Yeah, I, it made me feel uh, like I had been to Erewhon, maybe. <laughs> you've, you've stepped by Erewhon. I think of it as like bitter, which I like it as like a reset, right? As like a palate reset. Yeah, you know, I'm someone cool. that gets bitters and soda at bars pretty often. Nice. And it felt like a, a nice little canned version of that, which was nice. That's great. Hey, thanks for uh, for sharing your three things, Eliza. Anytime. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 